Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of Sleep, Real Time, places like that. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hello. Um, in a minute, <laughs> we're going to be here with Ashley Gold of Axios because she is going to join us to talk about antitrust. There's been some big antitrust news this week. JetBlue was banned from buying Spirit Airlines. We're going to talk about that and the bigger picture of what is going on. Such a wide-ranging conversation that even spills over into the Slate Plus where we talk about Epic versus Apple and the App Store monopoly. We also have a return to office segment. We're going to talk about who's back in the office who isn't we're going to talk about oil markets and the oil price that isn't rising it's all coming up on slate money okay so let's start with antitrust and the one and only ashley gold of axios you have teletransported in to slate money to drop some knowledge here and the big news of the week is the Department of Justice. Am I right about that? It's the DOJ and not the FTC who stopped JetBlue from merging with Spirit Airlines. Yeah, it's a big victory for the DOJ. Generally, the DOJ has been a little more successful in getting companies to abandon their proposed mergers. Both Jonathan Cantor, who's the head of antitrust at the DOJ and Lena Khan, who is the chair of the FTC, have been talking a big game about antitrust enforcement since they came into power. So when they get a win like this, it's pretty significant. And so what was the win? It was um, in court, right? A judge basically agreed with their argument that a tie-up between Spirit and JetBlue would be bad, would lead to higher prices, I guess, for, for travelers. Yeah. And generally, that's the challenge is not so much arguing their positions in their own litigation. It's will a federal judge actually agree with them that this is bad for competition? Because in the U.S., only a court can stop a merger. The DOJ and the FTC can't stop mergers on their own. So, you know, the DOJ and the FTC can have the best reason argument in the world. But if a federal judge doesn't agree with them, you know, they're not going to win. However, this one was a little easier for the DOJ because... This is what we call a horizontal merger of two companies that do the same thing, merging. So it's a little easier to argue those in front of a court. Those cases are more tested. Yeah, I have a, I have this feeling like Lena Khan at the FTC is famous for this thing that she invented, which people call hipster antitrust, which is basically saying like you can be bad just by being big and being a monopoly, even if there's no obvious consumer harm. Whereas this one, the, the spirit JetBlue merger, is more like boomer antitrust, right? This is good old-fashioned. If you merge, then prices are going to go up and that's going to be bad for consumers. Yeah, it's kind of a traditional win for the DOJ. It, it's not all that different than something that would have happened in a previous administration. But because of this administration's uh, reputation for being tough on corporations and you know wanting to do a lot of antitrust action, it's it's a little more significant. People notice it a little more. Um, where the FTC and the DOJ have struggled, like you mentioned, is when they try to introduce more novel or less known sort of arguments of antitrust to the courts. 
But they've had success there too, right, Ashley? I mean, they they succeeded in blocking the Penguin Random House Simon and Schuster merger, and the argument there was also not it was not boomer antitrust, which I guess I think Felix just coined that. It was more <laughs> hipster antitrust, right? Because it wasn't consumers argued. They didn't argue it was consumers. It was authors. They were, it was going to hurt authors because we were going to get lower right. advances. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they won there too. That's true. That's true. And I will say the DOJ has been a little more successful than the FTC in, in this regard. They're a little better at arguing their point in a way that does not come off as this is something that could potentially happen. Where Lena mm. Khan has sort of faltered is getting courts to believe her that these novel theories of potential harm are, you know, relevant enough to stop a merger. It's it's a little less tested and therefore, you know, courts and judges are a little less sympathetic to it. And just to be clear, like, again, this is just one of those bizarre American quirks, a bit like how you have the CFTC and the SEC kind of competing slash cooperating with each other to do markets regulation. You have the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission sort of competing slash cooperating with each other to do antitrust. There's no dedicated antitrust entity that does these things. Right. Uh, Both the FTC and the DOJ have antitrust divisions. They generally have their sectors that they stick to. And when all the big tech investigations started under the Trump administration, the DOJ and FTC sort of divvied up the big companies and said, hey, we'll tackle these and you tackle those. So they made kind of an agreement between the two agencies, and that's how it has panned out in the Biden administration. But still, there's overlap. Recently, there an example of the DOJ and FTC working together was they revised the merger guidelines, which hadn't been revised in many decades, and they worked together to make those guidelines stricter. Uh, so now when two companies want to merge, they will have uh, new guidelines to look at that are more reflective of how we're thinking about antitrust in that age. But overall, the, yeah, there's no dedicated agency, which makes things a little complicated sometimes. Let me let me come back to, to Spirit JetBlue for a minute, because Spirit originally agreed to sell itself to Frontier. Um, and the reason they said, we don't think we want to sell, sell ourselves to JetBlue is precisely because they said, look, the DOJ is going to let us merge with Frontier. There's no way it's going to let us merge with JetBlue, and we don't want to try and enter into a merger that is doomed to fail. And then JetBlue ended up offering so much money that the shareholders were like, we'll just take the money, which turns out to have been a bit dumb. Are there any, I mean, following up on that, are there any downsides to the ruling for consumers? Like, Particularly if Spirit is struggling a little bit and a potential outcome is that Spirit just flops and then you don't have low-cost outline or low-cost airline at all? Yeah, it depends who you ask. I mean, your sort of traditional um, anti-big government and corporations folks would tell you this is a loss for consumers because a bigger company like JetBlue could have given Spirit the resources and things that they need to offer more flights at more times for lower prices. And this is actually a loss for consumers. Other people would tell you that no, we just need these corporations to exist individually and allow people to have choice. And the more consumer choice, the better. But when you're faced with those realities that, you know, maybe Spirit 
is going to shut down, then it's hard to tell what is better for consumers. But at the end of the day, I think what regulators are looking at is, you know, the option and the choices of, you know, going with different budget airlines. This is also, though, where where the wonders of Chapter 11 bankruptcy come in, because the great thing about the bankruptcy regime and limited liability companies and all of that kind of thing is that Spirit Airlines can go through bankruptcy while continuing to fly and sell cheap tickets and then come out the other end with much less debt and looking like a sustainable airline. And it's great. You know, companies can go burst, shareholders can go to zero, and consumers can still keep on getting their cheap tickets all along and the airline keeps on flying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine that's something, you know, that was taken into account. So right now, there are four airlines that have about 80% of the domestic market, American Delta, United, Southwest. Like, it's cool that the DOJ, you know, is trying to stop further consolidation. But I mean, the ship seems like it has sailed in this industry. You know, like at this point, it's sort of like, is this as big a deal as we're making it out to be right now? Since, I mean, JetBlue is what, like the sixth largest airline. I guess it seems like they're nibbling around the edges with this. I guess what I would say is these regulators don't necessarily operate in a space of looking at what the industry looks like right now. It's more like they're sort of regulating for the future they want and the idea that there should be more competition and more companies and more consumer choice. So sometimes it's a little bit ambitious or it's, you know, a future they wish to see where, you know, we just have so many budget airlines and it's easy and it's cheap and we have the equivalent of, you know, like EasyJet and Tap Air um, here in the U.S. So they're sort of always ambling towards this like idealistic future of more consumer choice. And I think that's what motivates them even when the realities on the ground like don't quite line up. So when I was doing the prep for this segment, I was reading about Jonathan Cantor now, he he was kind of like friends with Lena Khan. They both have the same basic oh, yeah. agenda. But he gets – I mean, he's just – Lena Khan is just – I think I read sh- – there's been an anti-Lena Khan op-ed in the Wall Street Journal like every 10 days since she's like been running the FTC or something insane like that. She's just a lightning rod. Meanwhile, this other guy, no one seems to hate him. What's going on? Is it what I think it is or or something else? Have you heard of this little thing called sexism and ageism? (laughs) Does it like, because she's like a lady? Is that? Well, okay. So a couple things. So I think it's sexism for sure. I think it's ageism for sure. I think she's been an easy target because of her gender and because of her age. And she's just been a little more interesting in the press. Like she became famous because of this paper that she wrote in law school. So she's been well known in sort of pro- hipster antitrust circles since 2017. So she had this reputation that sort of preceded her before she even came to Washington. And then she took a job on the House Judiciary Committee to work on this major antitrust investigation under uh, David Cicilline and Ken Buck. And she became a little more infamous when she was on the Hill. And then she finally ascended to the FTC. Whereas Cantor, he sort of has been a Washington entity for a while. He's worked for the government before. He's worked at major law firms in Washington for many years. Uh, He's older. He was sort of already a Washington player. Um, And even though he, you know, aligns himself with Lena as far as their stances on things and how they look at antitrust, 
he was just already kind of known and he was just like, uh, you know, a guy. There's there's a large chunk of, of sexism here, but there's also just the sort of agent experience thing, right? We saw this a lot in the Trump administration too, when Trump would put 32-year-olds in charge of things and everyone would go like, this guy has no idea how to run anything. And there does seem to have been in practice, as you say, the FTC under Lena Khan does seem to have found it harder to execute on the vision, even if the vision is is more aggressive. But is that true? Has it, has she really had such a hard time? Hasn't she had some victories? She has had some victories. She has had victories in healthcare, biotech, and a couple others. But where I would say she has had victories, which you would actually like look at as losses if you look at the court record, is just the way she's moved the conversation. So there are there are ways that people talk about antitrust now and big tech and consolidation they weren't talking about before she came along or they weren't talking about as much. So the sheer fact that a big company like Meta or Google has to think about how Lena Khan's FTC might anticipate what they're going to do in a way that they didn't before, I think it has moved the conversation a lot. There's more transparency. If the FTC files for an injunction or something, they have to explain the reasoning for the merger in court documents. We might not have seen that before. So it just sort of makes companies explain themselves in a way that just didn't happen before because the mergers would just get waved through. And you would never really know the reasoning behind it or how they would explain why this is good, actually. So even if they end up losing in court as a reporter, I think it's interesting for transparency because it gets more companies on the record as to why they even want to you know, consolidate more in the first place. And let me ask you the other thing, which I've heard from a couple of places, and we've talked about this, I think, in the past. There's this argument that insofar as the FTC is getting particularly aggressive, certain rulings are going to wind up getting appealed to the Supreme Court, which with its in its current incarnation is going to find like a huge chunk of FTC powers to be completely unconstitutional, and it's going to wind up just weakening the entire antitrust infrastructure of the United States. Is this a legitimate worry? Yeah, I think it's a worry if you're an antitrust enforcer in the Biden administration and you're staring down, you know, the election next year and knowing that you're probably not going to be in power anymore. You have to wrap up your investigations and do what you're going to do ASAP because the next um, iteration of your agency could just unwind everything. And that's why rulemaking and all of the stuff that's done by the agencies is just not sustainable because ultimately, you know, laws and Congress is what lasts. If you're very, very like pro hipster antitrust, you're cheering on the FTC and the DOJ. But what you really want is laws because the agencies can only do so much and they can be reversed immediately. And with the Supreme Court, they're not very friendly towards sort of the administrative power of uh, agencies um, on the executive level. So if it does reach the Supreme Court, you know, that's that's not good news for the agencies. Ashley Gold, thank you so much for coming on. There's a whole little side conversation about Apple and Epic that I really want to have with you, but we don't have time to put in the main show. So we're going to shunt that off to Slate Plus. But otherwise, thanks for being on Slate Money. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Hybrid work has won. The return to office wars are over. Emily, you had an amazing chart earlier this week on Axios.com where it basically showed the proportion of Americans who who kind of hybrid it. Sometimes they're in the office, sometimes they're at home. And it used to be very low, around 6%. And then it spiked, obviously, during the pandemic, during lockdown, to some massive number, 40 50%. And then it fell back down to kind of the low 20s, kind of like 22-ish. And then it's just been stuck there for like over a year. And that line isn't moving. We have found a new equilibrium. And this is kind of what I wrote my book about. Like we needed to just break the old model and COVID like created a new model. And like there's a reveal preference, which, you know, CEOs can rail about it or that they can just deal with it in whatever way. But one way or another, like this is the new reality. And we are now in a world of hybrid work, which is not ubiquitous. It's still only like one in five people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, you know, companies, people inside companies, knowledge work companies, especially wanted to do this for a long time before the pandemic, but CEOs were scared. They didn't want that that kind of change. I mean, they still clearly don't like it just judging from some of the headlines that we, we are seeing all the time. They didn't want to do it, but then they were forced to do it, like you said. And now there's really no going back. I mean, of course there are businesses that are still trying to get people into the office. There was this really cringe video from the comp- the parent company of WebMD. Have you guys seen this? Yes. Where they, yes. sing, they sing and they say like, you have to come back. And it's like vaguely threatening, but also cheerful. We have been slow in getting back with some people and in some places. That's about to change. Your manager will be in touch with you shortly about how this will be implemented and tracked. Thank you, team. I want to leave you with this. We aren't asking or negotiating at this point. We're informing of how we need to work together going forward. And he's like, we're not asking anymore. Yeah, it's so creepy. Here's some pizza. Um, I mean, those get attention, but even even the companies that have gotten attention, like Jamie Dimon, I think starting even in 2020 was like, people have to come back. 
you know, he's the CEO of JP Morgan Chase. JP Morgan Chase has hybrid workers now. Like, yes, a lot of people came back. The senior executives have to be in five days a week, but lower down the the ladder, people can come, people can stay home, you know, two days a week because that's just reality now. People don't come in every day. It's it's those times are over. I think there's also a little bit of naivete on the part of companies that started going remote because of COVID that you could just switch the culture back as soon as the pandemic was over. But it sort of made, I I think a lot of people in the workforce realize how much they hated their commutes, uh, how much more productive they were when they had flex time. And people can't unsee that. Like, I, I don't know how you would culturally roll it back. I just think the thing that strikes me about this chart is not so much that it has gone up from 6% to 20%, right? That is something that like once you have the technology and once you have the ability and once you have the optionality, it kind of stands to reason that people are going to avail themselves of that option. What strikes me about it is also how far it came down, like the degree to Mm. which people did come back to the office post-pandemic and the degree to which it isn't changing. You know, it's just like we have this my, you know, this relatively small minority of about 20% of people who are doing this. And we also have a significant majority of workers who aren't and who the whole, this whole debate about hybrid work and return to office is completely moot because they are just back working wherever they work geographically, physically, every day they work there. And, and the normal is the return to office. And then you know, when you're when you're inside the Manhattan media bubble and the knowledge workers and all of that kind of stuff, you think that maybe hybrid work is more ubiquitous than in reality it is. That's a good point. Yeah, we are. I am biased because that's what I see. And that's what you do working out of your home in Westchester. Yeah. Elizabeth, do you mostly work from home? Uh, yeah, unless I, you know, I, I have several gigs, so I'm not, nobody could really make me be in the office anyway, but I, the only time I really have to leave is when I'm teaching at NYU. The one thing, I mean, you're saying it's a minority of people, Felix, and that's true, but it's having a pretty outsized impact on the economy. Um, we had other stories this week and there's tons of reporting, obviously, on what's going on with offices in cities around the country. I think I talked about it last week. They're like not full. And there's some distress in the commercial real estate office market. I mean, that's not that's not like tearing down the economy in any way, but it's like a, it's a big shift, and it's a question mark what happens to a lot of the the office space, whether it gets converted to residential or something else. And there's also shifts in like consumption patterns in downtowns. You know, some old lunch spots maybe aren't being frequented the way they used to be. That kind of stuff. I, I saw this statistic saying that, like, you know, Manhattan office workers are spending twelve billion dollars a year less than they used to because they're not in the office as much. But then I look around at you know lunch spots in Midtown and the crowds on the streets, and I have to say I'm not seeing it myself. And I do think there's a long term shoe to drop as leases run off. Right there, I just saw a post on threads from the CEO of Medium. I've been in many, many offices over the course of my reporting career, and I have to say that Medium is is like top five in terms of one of the nicest offices I've ever been in. It's in this gorgeous, narrow, triangular space in, in San Francisco, and it has it's just loads of natural light. All of the desks do clever little up-down standing desky things automatically and it's you know got great amenities in terms of well it certainly had great amenities in terms of 
coffees and beers and food and chefs and all of this kind of stuff. And that office is empty. There is no one working in it right now. And it's all because, you know, they signed the lease through the end of 2025 and they've kind of gone virtual and also like who even uses Medium anymore. And so at some point, an office that beautiful and that nice is, there is always going to be demand for that. Someone in, you know, San Francisco is going to want to move in there, avail themselves of that kind of facility. And we just need to wait for the leases to run off and the new leases to be negotiated at what I'm sure will be lower rates. And then that's good. You know, the rents come down, more people can afford that kind of space. There's more vibrancy in terms of the range of companies that can afford to have offices in San Francisco and that kind of thing. So I feel like there's a big like next shoe to drop in terms of who the 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 companies that can afford to lease space in, in places like San Francisco and New York. But that's going to take a while. Here in New York, our mayor has stopped shaming people about not going to the office all the time because of a uh, commercial. It's big for him. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it is. I mean, it kind of is. It's uh, significant, at least in terms of the way I think city government is thinking about these things. And they're shifting to conversations about using empty office space, particularly in Midtown, for affordable housing. Yeah, they have a list of 46 buildings, which we asked them for that list and they wouldn't give to us but they do have they promise a list of 46 buildings that they want to to, to convert to residential zooming out i was thinking about this because I'm, I'm reading this book it's not out yet by um cal newport he's the new yorker writer he writes about you know work and productivity and all this and he had some stuff in his book about how like when offices when we all started working back in offices not we my parents or grandparents back in the early, you know, in the 20th century and everyone started filing into to offices like how you see in like the movie, The Apartment, you know, big layout. Everyone goes in at nine, everyone leaves at five, clacking on the typewriters all day. Like that was all kind of modeled after factory work. Like the office, even in its current incarnation was like, well, factory workers go in and they work like a set number of hours every day, every week. So that's what office workers should do. And like, maybe it never even made that much sense, but it took the pandemic to sort of like dislodge that kind of whole rationale and that whole mode of working. Because I mean, the fact is that the kind of work we do, the kind of work um, people do that we talk to a lot of the times, knowledge work, it's not like you sit down and you knowledge it out for the next eight hours. It's like, you know, you're thinking about work like in the shower and you like figure out how you want to write a story like while you're like driving to the gas station and then you write it. Like it doesn't happen in this set place, in this set time frame. So it never really made sense in the first place. So the fact that it sort of landed at this new higher level actually makes a lot of sense. I, I can definitely tell you as someone who writes a weekly newsletter that my weekly newsletter basically never gets written between the hours of nine and five. <laughs> like, I, I can't remember the last time that ever happened. Yeah, it's just like, it's not the kind of work you can just be forced to do. Like, you can't just, you know, screw the paragraph widget on the sentence widget and like add <laughs> the period and like churn it out to someone. That's not how it works. So a quick break and we'll be back to talk about oil markets and why the price of oil hasn't spiked in the context of all of this craziness in the Middle East. Let's move on to oil, because I feel like this is a fun little conundrum that we can discuss. There is 
a major war in the Middle East, or at least a medium-sized war in the Middle East. And most importantly, the Houthis in Yemen are busy disrupting 90% of traffic through the Suez Canal. Like It's all being rerouted around the bottom of Africa, basically, because no one wants to get blown up by Houthi rebels. And normally, when this kind of shooting war happens in the Middle East, oil prices spike. And this time, not so much. Elizabeth, do you have an explanation? And is it something to do with fracking? <laughs> no, it's it's about uh, OPEC. Um, in the 70s, you know, we got 70% of our oil imports from OPEC. And by the end of 2022, we were getting 15% because now we're importing it from Canada, Brazil, and Guyana. And there's also lower demand because in Europe and China, people are spending less on energy. So yeah, it is. I mean, it is shale oil and, and all of the big new discoveries in the US and Canada have made the US much less reliant on foreign oil. So it kind of makes sense, perhaps in terms of sort of US domestic demand for gasoline, but oil is a global commodity. And if the oil supply chain is globally disrupted, then you would think that globally speaking, global oil prices would go up. I don't quite see why U.S. domestic demand dynamics play that much of a role, except insofar as the U.S. and Canada globally have become more important producers and OPEC has become less important. How much of global oil transport goes through the Suez Canal? Well, it's a good question. Oil is more transportable than gas, but it is still expensive to transport. And so ideally, if you have oil, what you want to do is you want to pump it through pipelines and you want to move it short distances. And it is cheaper to do it that way. So it's always been a kind of the last thing that anyone wants to do is put oil on the tanker and put it through the Suez Canal because that's always been expensive. And now it's become even more expensive. And so there's more incentive for people to try and find more sort of local oil that hasn't been shipped through, shipped thousands of miles. So I do think that explains some of it, but it's still kind of striking that we haven't seen more disruption to the markets from this. And there has been a bunch of talk that like, if these wars expand a little bit further, then there is still a real risk that oil prices and energy prices could spike in much the same way as they did when Russia invaded Ukraine. Wasn't that part of the reason why people were surprised the Gaza conflict has not, you know, experienced the kind of contagion that it could have bringing more conflict to the whole region. And because that sort of hasn't happened, it hasn't affected oil supplies. Yeah. After all, Gaza doesn't doesn't have oil. It's just so surprising um, when you think of when I think maybe it's my generation. When I think Middle East conflict, I, I automatically think, oh, well, oil prices, this is about oil. But feels like maybe for the first time, or maybe it's the first time it's so starkly clear that this is the conflict is not about oil and the stakes aren't don't involve oil and that maybe takes a level of complexity out of it. If the worst sector that gets hit is, you know, the Israeli tourism industry, that's much less economically important than the oil. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe people will do fewer dumb things. I don't know. Could be. Even the other crisis right now stemming from this conflict, the Houthi rebels shooting at uh, commercial shipping vessels and forcing 
container ships to go around the Cape of Good Hope instead of going through the Suez Canal, which is sort of like messing around with supply chains. So far, hasn't been that bad. Like shipping costs have gone up a bit and some things are getting delayed. But so far, like this isn't your 2020 supply chain crisis. It's like fairly a contained crisis about shipping containers. And and I will say again, like, you know, for the second time in this um, podcast, referring back to my book, the COVID shock to supply chains was massive precisely because supply chains were so incredibly efficient and shipping routes were so incredibly efficient in 2019. And there wasn't any way that they could prove resilient if they broke at all. When they were rebuilt, they were rebuilt in a much more robust way because like people realized that shocks happen. And so when a shock like this happens and the Suez Canal gets, you know, effectively shut off, the shipping industry globally, which is less efficient, more robust, more redundant, is more capable of dealing with it than it was in 2020. Wow. Wait, so you would maybe I don't know if you'll know the answer, but like, are there more supply chain consultancies now than there were in 2019? Because my inbox is flooded with supply chain consultancies and experts. <laughs> and I wonder if this is like a result. It's the new hotness. And it's it's really easy to work remotely from a container ship off the coast of the <laughs> We are going to have a numbers round, but before we have a numbers round, Emily, we have one other piece of business that we need to clear up, Oh, which is the stakes of our Bitcoin bet. The bet is that if in a year's time, if you add up all of the assets under management of all of the Bitcoin ETFs that are now live, the question is, will, will all of that AUM collectively approach 5% of the market cap of Bitcoin in total? If it's okay. 5% or more, then you win. If it's under 5%, then I win. And we did have a wonderful suggestion from a listener, which I really like, which is that this is a one-year bet, and in a year's time, the loser of the bet has to buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin. $1,000? Yeah. you need to. If you lose the bet... If you, Emily, lose the bet, then you need to buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin as Bitcoin in some kind of self-hosted wallet or some way that you can spend the Bitcoin and access the Bitcoin directly. If I lose the bet, I need to buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin as an ETF, and I need to go out and and buy $1,000 of an ETF. (laughs) So we should give credit to Jack Danny, who came up with this. Well done, Jack. This is awesome. Do you have a sense, have you been following at all in the past uh, week or so and uh, how, how we're doing here? I saw a headline that said a billion dollars in BlackRock. Yeah, I, th- I think it's sort of single digit billion inflows in the first week or so. And what's the market cap of Bitcoin right now? I can't remember. All right. But we've, we've, already, we've already made the bet. <laughs> I have to remind you of this, uh, Emily. We've already made the bet. The only question is what are the stakes? And you can't, right. Yes. $1,000 is a lot of money. $1,000 is a lot of money. But then again, the whole point is that it's not like you're losing that money. It is, you keep that money. It's still your money. You're not giving it to me. But the price of Bitcoin could go down. Yes, or it could go up. Right, right. All right, fine. And and uh, our lovely correspondent even gave us a very full chapter and verse form of words of exactly how this bet should be structured. If Emily is correct, and on Sunday, January 12th, 2025, at least 5% of the total market cap of Bitcoin 
is held by the 11 spot ETFs approved this week, Felix must allocate $1,000 to his choice of the ETFs and hold for five years. Five years? He may then choose to continue holding or sell his position. Conversely, if I win... (laughs) Emily must allocate $1,000 to actual Bitcoin on an exchange in self-custody in either a hot or cold wallet. She can at any time swap the Bitcoin for other cryptos, including stables. What? Or use it. To, so basically, you you get a better deal here than I do. Okay. Because I can't convert to dollars, but you can. Okay. You, you can convert to, you convert to, you know, USDC or USDT or oh, something like that. Safe choice. But you cannot cash out to actual USD until... 2013. Oh my god. All right, so that's the stake. So we agreed. We are agreed. Huzzah. Huzzah. <laughs> what's the expiration date on the bet? What one year from last week? So January 12th, 2025. Can Slate put in? <laughs> you gonna pay us for you're gonna contribute to this or just saying it's a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. But I'm in. I'm in. I I said I was in. Fantastic. All right, let's have a numbers round. Elizabeth, do you have a number? Uh, yeah. So my number is $88,576, and that's the per capita income in Massachusetts, which is now the richest state in the country. But it, or actually, it has yeah. been for three years, and it was Connecticut. But in 2020, Connecticut lost out by $10 to Massachusetts. So now Massachusetts has solidified its now three-year run over Connecticut. So it's $88,000 per capita. So if you take, and this is, if you take the total amount of money earned and divide it by the total number of adults, it comes to $88,000. Yeah. That's that's high because I'm used to household incomes being that high, but per capita, that means that like if you have a household with, a, a typical household with like two adults would be earning 175, something like that. Median income in the U.S. is in the 70s. Massachusetts is the highest now. It was Connecticut from 1987 to 2019. Connecticut had consistently every single year the highest per capita income in the country. But now all the hedges have moved to Florida. Yes. My number is 28%, which is the percentage of spending on hair care products that is spent on sustainable hair care products once people have signed up for this website online called Karma Wallet. I've done this myself. It's um, kind of interesting. What you do is you upload your um, credit card, you like connect it through Plaid, and then it looks at all of the places you've spent your money, and they have this database of seven. 17,749 brands and they're all ranked on how sustainable they are according to like the UN sustainable development goals and about 18% of them um get like that green tick and say like that's sustainable and you're like oh and you feel like this little um jolt of um being good and noble because you've spent money at a at a sustainable company um so when people sign up for Karma Wallet it turns out that about 10% of their hair care spending is um, is spent on sustainable brands. But then they realize how low it is. And then within a few months, they've changed their spending and it goes up to 28%. And there are three brands in particular, Pros Beauty, County, Pros, Beauty Counter and Avida, where they start spending their money because they have that little green tick. 
But anyway, Emily, what's your number? My number is also an income number following in Elizabeth's footsteps. My number is $1,031. That's a median weekly earnings for women in 2023. And it's notable because that is 83.8% of what median weekly earnings were for men, which makes this 83.8% number the narrowest gender pay gap on record, which is a good thing. Well done, ladies. Well done, ladies, I guess. I mean, 100% would obviously be better. Um, But yeah, and this is because of things I've been reporting on and probably talking about on Slate Money for the past year, which is women have really record labor force participation or employment rates are very high right now. And some of that does actually have to do with what we talked about earlier in the episode about remote work, because there is some evidence coming in that um, one reason there are more women employed right now in the U.S. is because they're able to do to work remotely sometimes and juggle, you know, family responsibilities and things like that. On which happy note, I think we can wrap it up for this week. Thanks to Jared Downing and Shana Roth for producing. And of course, thank you again to Ashley Gold for coming on. We love you, Ashley. Thanks to all of you guys for writing in with great ideas for bets and other things. Slate Money at Slate.com. We'll be back next Saturday with a regular Slate Money. <laughs> 